Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to Campus Killings, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including The Murder in My Family, DNA ID, Zodiac Speaking, Scene of the Crime, Missing Persons, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, and Citizen Detective. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. While the summer is over and fall is here, with the new season brings a new school semester and for us, a return to this podcast. Welcome back everyone to season two of Campus Killings. We'll be doing things a little differently this season based on your suggestions. So if you like it, please leave us a review and let us know. Amy, today's case is a fairly recent one and it was pretty heavily covered in the media. Have you heard of Samantha Josephson? The name doesn't ring a bell, but I'm sure once I hear the story, it'll sound more familiar. Well, today we're going to the college town of Columbia, South Carolina, the home of the University of South Carolina, or USC. And in this case, a college senior gets into a car she thinks is an Uber, but is found brutally murdered only 14 hours later. Now I bet you know it. Yep, I know that case. Okay, well, why don't we start today with a little background about the college itself to orient ourselves. Originally called South Carolina College, the institution opened its doors to its first students in 1801 in an effort to unite South Carolina residents after the Revolutionary War. While the school was flourishing at the time, a fire in 1855 devastated most of the buildings, and five years later, the Civil War broke out. And since the college was only open to men, their enrollments were incredibly low due to all their eligible students enlisting in the war. The college actually closed in 1861 and did not reopen again until after the Civil War in 1866, at which time the administration revamped the college with plans to make it a pinnacle of diversity. In fact, they had their first Black Board of Trustees member in 1868 and began accepting Black male students in 1873. Which is pretty remarkable, Amy, as this was during the Jim Crow era in the South, where many black people were being barred from educational opportunities. In 1895, women were admitted for the first time, and by the 1920s, female students counted for 25% of the student body. I would say that's also a sign of progress. By the 1970s, the college had expanded to several satellite campuses around South Carolina, and the school obtained university status. By the time Samantha Josephson decided to attend USC, the school had grown to over 30,000 students and was heavily integrated 
with the surrounding city of Columbia. So just to give our listeners a little background on the school, and I learned something new there as well. Now let's meet Samantha. A New Jersey native, Samantha Josephson was infatuated with USC's campus when she accompanied her older sister on a campus tour in 2014. Even though her sister wound up picking a different college, from the day she set foot on USC's campus, Samantha knew that was where she wanted to go. I felt that same way as well. When I first stepped onto the campus of University in Rhode Island, I knew from the moment I hit that quad, that was where I was going to go. And while Samantha's parents weren't totally pleased that their youngest daughter would be living a 12-hour drive away, it was clear when they went to visit her for the first family weekend that Sammy, as they called her, was right at home at USC. Sammy had always been a good student, and college was no exception for her. She majored in political science, so did I, with the intent to go to law school after graduation. So did I you. know. So I, was, I really connected with this because this was yeah. my trajectory or so I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, she also got involved with on-campus activities, including pledging to the Alpha Gamma Delta sorority and doing a study abroad semester in Barcelona, Spain. Sounds like she's really taking advantage of all that college has to offer. She really did. Um, Sammy hoped to be fluent in Spanish by graduation and her Spanish professor, Daniela Jamies, described Sammy as always having a bright smile saying, She lit up a room, and she was just a joy to have in class. She had many friends and was described by them as always being her most authentic self. She was known for being able to read a room well and treated everyone she encountered as if they were her best friend. Sammy also was an excellent student, and in 2018, in her senior year, she got accepted to Drexel University's law program with a full scholarship. Yes, That's impressive. She was ecstatic about this and began making plans to move to Philadelphia with her boyfriend of two years, Greg, to be close to her new school. But just two months before her graduation from USC, Sammy's life would take a fatal turn. On the evening of March 28, 2019, Sammy had gone out with some of her sorority sisters to the Five Points, which is a neighborhood just outside USC with shopping, nightlife, and restaurants. And it's really a favorite place for the USC students to socialize. So Sammy and her friends often went there to go to the bars and the restaurants. And by all accounts, this was a clean, safe, well-lit area with tons of students always around. Now, Sammy was a very smart and cautious young woman. So she had actually called her father, Seymour, before going out to the bar to ask him if she could use his credit card to book an Uber to take her home when she was done with her friends. And he told her, of course. And I really think that this just shows the kind of person Sammy was, that she was checking in with her family and her friends. She liked for people to know what her plans were. She was cautious. Little did her father know that this would unfortunately be the last call that he would ever get from his daughter. On this particular night, the sorority sisters went to the Bird Dog Pub to celebrate Sammy's scholarship and acceptance to Drexel. They arrived around midnight, had some drinks, and around 2 a.m., Sammy said that she was going home because she had work the next day. She ordered an Uber through the app, left her friends at their table, and she also called her boyfriend, Greg, to tell him about you know her evening as she was walking to the curb to wait for her Uber. She also, get this, shared her location with him through the Find My Friends app 
as they often did in their relationship, so they could make sure the other one got home safely when they went out. Things like that are so haunting. All right, the fact that she called her dad to ask, and then she's sharing her location. She's doing all of the right things to protect herself. She really is. And yes, it is haunting. A few minutes later, while waiting on the sidewalk crowded with college students, Sammy saw a black sedan pull up in front of her, and she said goodbye to Greg and got into the car. Now, Greg watched her location through the Find My Friends app so he could see when the Uber safely dropped her off at her dorm. According to his testimony later during the trial, this was something that he and Sammy did for each other whenever they were traveling anywhere. So he was a little concerned when he saw Sammy's location wasn't heading towards her dorm and that it was, in fact, heading in the opposite direction. Greg immediately tried texting and calling her to find out what was going on, but Sammy didn't respond. He even tried FaceTime and Snapchat, but he got no replies. So he immediately tried texting and calling her to find out what was going on, but she didn't respond. He even tried FaceTime and Snapchat, but he got no replies. Around 2.40 a.m., the app stopped showing Greg Sammy's location, and he wasn't sure if her phone had died or if she had turned it off. So its last location Greg could see was the Rosewood Residential Area, which was around five miles from USC's campus. Greg texted her roommates around 3 a.m. to tell them about the situation, and they all came to an agreement that Sammy had probably forgotten her phone in an Uber. Which makes sense. That's kind of a logical conclusion at that point. Mm -hmm. But when her roommates returned to their dorm around 3.30 a.m., they were shocked to find out that Sammy had not come back. They called Greg immediately to let him know, and he and her roommates continued to try to get in touch with her until around 5 a.m. They hoped that perhaps she had just gone to someone else's apartment or had met up with different friends after her Uber ride, and they were just hoping that they would hear something from her in the morning. What a scary feeling of just not being able... I think we take for granted how you could get in touch with people so easily, but it's... What a scary feeling to not be able to get in touch with someone that you're so used to talking to every minute. It's terrifying. I really agree with you. And around 11 a.m., Greg was woken up to Sammy's roommates calling to say that she had still not turned up and that they had called 911 to file a missing persons report. I'm glad everyone took it seriously so fast. Yes, I think also because they knew Sammy well and they just mm -hmm. knew that she wouldn't she wouldn't voluntarily do this, you know. She wouldn't voluntarily go somewhere and not let anyone know. Greg immediately got in his car and began the two-hour drive from Charleston, where he worked, to Columbia, South mm -hmm. Carolina. On the way, he called Sammy's parents to let them know what was going on, and they booked a flight from New Jersey to come down and look for their daughter immediately. There's a documentary, just so you know, on this case on Hulu. I, I don't. I think it's part of the series. I think there's a series about college dorm murders, but... In the documentary on Hulu, the parents talk about how getting this call was like the floor falling out from under them. When Greg arrived in Columbia, police were already at the dorm taking statements from her roommates, and Greg quickly told officers what he knew from the night before. While law enforcement began their preliminary investigations, Greg and Sammy's friends began their own detective work. The friends drove to the last location Greg had seen on the Find My Friends app, and they began knocking on doors and showing residents Sammy's photo to see if anyone knew where she'd gone. They also looked for her phone or any belongings that she may have left, but nothing came up. Then the friends went down to the bird dog to see if anyone had seen Sammy after she'd left the bar or if there was any security footage of her. And there was. 
The CCTVs outside the bar had captured Sammy waiting on the crowded sidewalk. It also showed a black Chevy Impala pulling up to the curb and Sammy getting in the back seat. After seeing the car, Greg drove back to the Rosewood neighborhood to ask residents if anyone knew anything about this black Chevy Impala, but no one seemed to know a thing. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. While Sammy's friends were searching and posting all over social media about Sammy's disappearance, investigators contacted Uber to see if there was a record of which driver had allegedly picked Sammy up on the early morning of March 29th. But what they found was that Sammy's ride had been canceled in the system after the driver reported that he went to the meetup location, but she wasn't there. And the car on record, if you are, if you have not already guessed, was not a black Impala. So the car that she had gotten into was not the Uber that she had called. Can you imagine being the family hearing that? That is no so shocking and so scary. I, I really can't. Finding out this information must have been really devastating. Meanwhile, around 65 miles away on wooded farmland outside of New Zion, South Carolina, two friends were turkey hunting. On their way back through the woods, they noticed something strange in the underbrush. As they got closer, they realized that it was the body of a human female. They immediately called 911 and the Carolina Sheriff's Department and South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, known as SLED, arrived about a half hour later. As detectives looked over the scene, it was clear that the female had endured extensive violence. She had been stabbed multiple times in her head, neck, torso, and feet. One of the investigators remembered a bolo, a be on the lookout for a missing woman from USC. Pulling up Samantha Josephson's photo from that bolo, detectives were 99% sure that the body in the woods was the missing young woman. Tell me again how far they found the body from where she was picked up. It was about 65 miles. Okay. So the reason that they were sure is that the clothes were the same as what she was last seen in, and her facial features and hair were identical to this photo. And this was just 14 hours after Sammy Josephson was last seen on CCTV. Now, law enforcement did not immediately publicize that Sammy had been found. You know, investigators needed to find the Impala and they didn't want to scare the driver off by making a public announcement. Mm -hmm. However, when Sammy's parents arrived in Columbia, they were taken to headquarters to be told. Sammy's mother, Marcy, later said as she and her husband sat in a room with a lot of officers, she noticed that one man was wearing a jacket that said coroner on the back. She said she knew right in that moment that her daughter was deceased. As SLED was collecting Sammy's remains for an autopsy, Columbia police were patrolling five points and canvassing the area for the Black Impala. 
one officer, Jeremy Kraft, saw an Impala closely resembling the Bolo and began following it. When the car pulled over around 3.30 a.m. on March 30th, the driver didn't have any identification on him, and Officer Kraft asked him to step out of the vehicle for more questioning, but the driver took off running into the night. Okay, well, that's our guy, right? It's not a good sign. As other officers chased the driver down, Officer Kraft began investigating the vehicle. He found marijuana buds, as well as an iPhone with a pink cover that had been shoved between the driver's seat and the middle console. He put the phone on the dashboard, but as he further investigated the back seat, Amy, he found a large quantity of blood spatter, a footprint on the black window. Um, I've seen this in video. It's chilling as well as bottles of bleach and rags in the trunk. He stopped his investigation and contacted the forensic team to sweep the car for evidence. Now, while the forensics team was arriving, other officers had tracked down the driver and arrested him for the marijuana possession um, because it was illegal in South Carolina Mm -hmm. and evasion. But the driver refused to give his identity. However, investigators were able to use facial recognition technology to identify the driver as 24-year-old Nathaniel Rowland, a South Carolina native. He was Mirandized and taken down to the police station to be interviewed. When asked where he'd been in the last 24 hours, Nathaniel claimed that he'd been partying at Stadium Suites, which was a dormitory apartment on USC's campus, and that he thought someone get this, Amy, had taken his keys and car while he was passed out drunk. Oh, gosh. Okay. And he says when he found his car the next morning, he claimed he saw blood on it. I mean, he clearly knows that, you know, he's getting caught here. He's just grasping at straws. I would say so. Um, And investigators were able to identify the pink iPhone as Sammy's while Nathaniel was being interviewed right during that time. When he was asked how the missing woman, Samantha Josephson's phone, got into his car, Nathaniel shut down the interview and refused to answer any more questions. But investigators saw him as the person of interest at this point, based on the car, the phone, his lack of alibi for his locations the night before. With all this information, they were able to get a search warrant for Nathaniel's car. The first thing law enforcement noticed when they began investigating the vehicle, was that the child locks were engaged, meaning that anyone sitting in the back seat wouldn't be able to open the doors. As they removed the back seat covers, they found the foam beneath was absolutely saturated with blood. The lead crime scene investigator stated that it was the most blood she'd ever seen on a crime scene in her 26 years on the job. And I don't think it's going to surprise you that when the blood was tested, it came back as a positive hit for Sammy Josephson. While detectives were trying to interview Nathaniel, pathologists were conducting Sammy's autopsy. Their findings revealed that Sammy had been stabbed 120 times with a double-bladed knife. She had extensive defensive wounds on her hands and feet that showed she had put up a fight against her assailant. The knife had deeply penetrated her skull, severed her carotid artery, and punctured her lungs. Wow, this sounds like uh, overkill, doesn't it? It really does. It it seems like an indication of something personal. It does, but I, I don't think it was personal, although it does seem that way. The pathologist later testified that Sammy had bled out in the span of about 10 to 20 minutes from the wounds and that her death was unequivocally ruled a homicide. 
But was the investigator's person of interest the man who committed the murder? Well, there was someone who found Nathaniel Rowland to be acting suspicious, and that was his girlfriend, Maria. Interesting. Right. Didn't see that coming. They had met several years earlier at a club, but had fallen out of touch and only reacquainted four weeks before Sammy's murder. At the time, Maria lived alone in an apartment about five miles from USC. Maria did not have a car, so Nathaniel often drove her back and forth to her job at the local McDonald's. On the evening of Sammy's murder, Maria had no access to a washer-dryer to clean her McDonald's uniform and had asked Nathaniel if he could wash it for her at his place. He told her that he would get his sister to wash her uniform and that they'd stop by his sister's house on the way to work in the morning to pick it up. Satisfied with this, Maria went to sleep around 1.30 a.m. while Nathaniel watched TV downstairs. When she woke at 6 a.m. to get ready for work, Nathaniel was not in the apartment. She was pretty shocked as they had discussed that he was supposed to drive her to get her uniform and then to work. Mm -hmm. But now she had no uniform and no ride. And on top of that, she remembered that she had left her McDonald's visor in Nathaniel's car. So she tried calling him on both of the cell phones he owned, but he didn't pick up either of them. Around 7 a.m., Nathaniel pulled into her driveway. She met him outside wanting to know if he had her uniform, but he interrupted her saying he had to take his nephew to school and that he'd be back for her. Now, Maria knew that Nathaniel's nephew lived about 30 minutes from her apartment, so she expected that he wouldn't be back for at least an hour. But he actually returned 10 minutes later. He had her work shirt, which was still wet, like it had just come out of the washing machine, but her visor was no longer sitting on the back window where she'd left it the day before. Maria later testified in court that when she asked him where her visor was, he said, quote, in the country, because it had blood on it. What? Yes. And when she pressed him for details, he told her to mind your business. Whoa. So while all of this was adding up to be fishy, Maria had to get in the car because it was the only way she had to get to work. So she got in the front passenger side and Nathaniel stopped for gas on the way. While she waited for him to pump the gas, Maria noticed some unsettling things. First of all, there was dried blood on the dashboard and the console. She turned around and saw that there was a sheet that had been thrown over the whole back seat, but part of it had fallen down and she noticed that there was a huge blood stain. Jeez, I'm hoping that she called the police at this point once she got out of the car. No. So she asked him if he'd maybe hit someone's dog and put it in the back seat. I think she was thinking that this might have been an accident with some type of animal. But again, Nathaniel told her to mind her business. As he drove her to work, she noticed that Nathaniel looked very tired. So she lent him her house key so he could sleep at her apartment before coming back to pick her up at 2 p.m. But at 2 p.m., Nathaniel did not show up, and Maria had to ask a co-worker to take her home. Nathaniel's Impala was in her driveway when she got dropped off, and she was understandably furious that he hadn't come to get her. She also found that the front door was locked, and she couldn't get into her own home. So she hammered on the door until Nathaniel opened it, And when he did, she noticed that he looked really scared, Mm -hmm. like he had been expecting someone else when he'd opened the door. She pushed past him to go take a shower. And when she got out, she saw that he was in the driveway cleaning the Impala's interior with cleaning products from her garage. 
She was annoyed that he hadn't asked her if she could borrow them, but she also needed to go to the ATM, and again, she needed his car to get there. Nathaniel agreed, but rode in the passenger seat while Maria drove and continued to clean blood off the dashboard with some wipes. This is really unbelievable, I know. (laughs) Yeah. As she drove, she noticed that there was a phone with a pink cover between the seats, and when she asked him why he had a girl's phone, He said that he found it and he was going to get it wiped and give it to her. Later that night, Nathaniel and his friends drove down to Five Points and Maria settled down to watch some TV. As she flipped channels, she saw a news clip about Samantha Josephson. In the clip, Maria could clearly see Nathaniel's car in the CCTV footage outside the bird dog. She later testified that as she watched the news clip, she knew unequivocally that it was his car because of the mud splatter on the back fender. However, you had asked before about the police. So at this point, you would think she would have called the police, but she didn't. And what she stated was at this point, she feared for her life. I was going to suggest that she was probably scared. I'd be scared. I'd be scared as well, Um, but I'd probably call the Mm -hmm. police nonetheless. It wasn't until the police came looking for Nathaniel at her house that she agreed to tell detectives everything she knew. She also gave them permission to search her home, and in the trash, investigators discovered bloody gloves, a serrated multi-purpose tool covered in blood and hair, the sheet Maria identified as being in the back of the car, and the bloody towels, all wrapped in family dollar plastic bags. I'm glad that that evidence existed. I'm assuming that's going to be what gets them. Well, it's pivotal. When investigators were able to get both of Nathaniel's phones and Sammy's phone, they were able to see that all three devices were tracking the same path the night of Sammy's disappearance, meaning that all three were in close proximity to each other and traveling at the same speed. But when all three devices hit the Rosewood neighborhood, Sammy's phone turned off, but Nathaniel's phones kept tracking. And his phone tracked him down the major highway connecting Columbia to the town of New Zion, 65 miles away. Also on the night of Sammy's disappearance, investigators found that Sammy's debit card was used twice at ATMs for cash withdrawals. And CCTVs from the banks showed a male who resembled Nathaniel at the ATMs at the time of the card's charges. Mm -hmm. Nathaniel's phone confirmed his presence at both ATM locations. So this is a lot of evidence piling up. There was also evidence in Samantha's phone that it had been powered back on at a cellular resale store in Columbia. When investigators went to the store looking for information, the owner was able to provide them CCTV footage that showed Nathaniel passing Sammy's phone over the counter to the clerk. The prosecution has, I mean, it's a mountain of evidence. I'll be shocked if this goes to trial. But let's hear. There's going to be some interesting turns okay. here, but this is a lot of evidence. The same cameras also caught Nathaniel parking and exiting a black Chevy Impala in front of the store. In this footage, there is a clear look into the back seat showing a white sheet with dark stains on it. And remember that I said Sammy had been stabbed over a hundred times with a double bladed knife? Mm-hmm. Well, the multi-purpose tool found in the trash at Maria's house fit the stab wound patterns on Sammy's body, as well as having her blood and hair on it. Mm -hmm. And lastly, investigators discovered that Nathaniel's family owned the farm in New Zion where Sammy's body had been found. And Nathaniel himself had resided at that property only several months prior. We'll return after a brief word from our sponsors. 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. By this point, investigators felt they had enough to arrest Nathaniel Rowland for the kidnapping and murder of Samantha Josephson. What would happen, Amy? What do you think? Is he going to take a plea or is they going to trial? I think there's a mountain of evidence. I think he's better served taking a plea, but I'm almost positive it goes to trial. That would be correct. Now, Nathaniel's trial was delayed due to COVID, but on July 21st, 2021, Sammy's family flew back down to Columbia to be present for the court proceedings. I'm assuming you'll get to this, but I'm curious, is he claiming complete innocence or is he now saying it's self-defense or some other bullshit? I know. Well, you're going to have to wait just one more minute to find out, okay? Mm -hmm. Sammy's mother, Marcy, recalls dreading the date because she was terrified of hearing the details about Sammy's death during the testimonies. Um, You know, she did not want to hear this, and I can't blame her. As it unfolded, DNA took precedence as the main issue in the case. You see, as much evidence as the prosecution had against Nathaniel, there was an anomaly in the DNA findings. While the blood found all over the car and on the multi-purpose tool was determined to be Sammy's, Nathaniel's DNA was a very low profile on the weapon, and there was a third unidentified DNA profile on the weapon. Additionally, while Nathaniel's flip-flops, fingernails, and socks from the night of the disappearance had Sammy's DNA on them, there was also a third unrelated person's DNA on Nathaniel's shoes and under his fingernails. There was also an unknown DNA profile on the gear shift and steering wheel of the car. So what does this mean? Could there be, could this third profile be maybe Maria's since she drove the car at one point? Or maybe another person who was in that car at some time? Right. Um, Coupled with the fact that when Nathaniel was arrested and checked for offensive wounds, he had none. Just sorry, just adding on to this uh, anomaly. And considering the look of the fight that had happened in the back seat, Nathaniel's defense team made claims that it would not have been possible for him to have no offensive wounds if Sammy had fought back. The DNA found under Sammy's fingernails was also not a positive match for Nathaniel. It was an unknown profile. Hmm. So, I mean, what does that mean? Did she, maybe she didn't you know they said that she fought but she's got unknown dna um is it possible i'm i'm gonna think of one possibility here maybe he was wearing gloves is that a possibility or uh, under her fingernails you would expect there to be his dna from her trying to scratch at his face his arms his legs his back unless he was fully maybe he was fully covered up somehow i don't know that is very strange There's also another possibility here that we haven't discussed. Maybe there was, he had an accomplice. Mm -hmm. It's a possibility. I'm just putting it out there. Any, any number of possibilities, but would agree in the situation that it is odd that there was no DNA and his DNA was not under her fingernails. 
Regardless of the defense's case that the DNA did not point to Nathaniel as the killer, they called no witnesses and Nathaniel chose not to take the stand himself, which I think was a wise call. And we see this happen in other cases, Amy, where the defense, they have a choice. They don't have to put on a case. Um, They just have to show that there is reasonable doubt in the prosecution's case. It doesn't always work out well, though, when the defense chooses not to give some version. Well, yeah, because the jury likes a story. And if there's no story, that leaves them to believe that there's no story for a reason. Yes. And the jury in this case took just one hour to deliberate at the conclusion of the trial. And on July 27th, 2021, Nathaniel was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to life in prison. Now, interestingly, I pointed to or I suggested there could have been an accomplice. So the question becomes, would Nathaniel not have revealed his accomplice to save himself? So is it unlikely? It's just a possibility that I put out there. Well, I would I also think with all this evidence that they had against him, there would have been other evidence of an accomplice at some point, maybe another person seen in the car or something else. Sure, I would have to agree. Um, It's also possible that she had DNA from someone else under her fingernails Mm -hmm. because she hugged someone or grabbed someone's arm or, you know, there's any number of possibilities here. Regardless, I think there was overwhelming proof Mm -hmm. of his guilt. I agree. Okay, now what about USC? Did they do anything following Sammy's murder? Because her abduction technically happened off campus, security on USC was unchanged after her disappearance. However, the university's paper followed Sammy's case closely and reported on her disappearance and later murder on an almost daily basis. In their interviews with students around the campus, the general consensus was one of shock and disbelief that Sammy was gone and that students had increased their level of caution when using Ubers and Lyfts to get around the city. After her murder was publicized, the student body held a candlelight vigil for Sammy that was attended by hundreds of students. Sammy's parents recall being blown away by the support and solidarity of the students who came out on Sammy's behalf. All of her sorority sisters spoke on her kindness, brilliance, tenacity, and fun-loving nature. They referred to her as the future Amal Clooney for Mm -hmm. how far they thought her life would have gone if she'd been alive to become the international lawyer she'd aspired to become. The university also issued Samantha a posthumous degree at the 2019 commencement where her parents accepted the diploma on her behalf. In the front row, an empty seat was draped with a cap and gown where Sammy should have been sitting had she been alive. And now, a brief word from our sponsors. Some of the bigger impacts to stem from this publicized case and her publicized murder. Following the outcome of the trial, Uber and other ride-sharing companies put out public statements about new safety regulations and changes they were making to their policies to ensure the safety of riders. In the direct wake of Sammy's murder, North Carolina passed the Passenger Protection Act that went into effect on July 1st, 2020. And this requires all rideshare drivers to display an illuminated sign in their front window, as well as posting their license plate number in the window at the front of the car. Um, Just a note, North Carolina doesn't require cars to have license plates in the front, only the back. 
The act also criminalized anyone found to be impersonating a ride-sharing employee or assaulting a ride-share employee and provided $500,000 in grant money to educate college and high school students on ride-sharing safety. And in New Jersey, Governor Murphy reached out to the Josephson family following Sammy's murder, asking for their input on a new bill concerning ride-sharing safety. New Jersey legislature worked with the Josephsons to create Sammy's Law. Have you heard of Sammy's Law? I have heard of Sammy's Law. I don't know exactly what it provides, though. Okay, it requires that all ride-sharing companies issue their employees identification placards that must be displayed on the car's rear windows with the driver's photo and name and the license plate number. In addition, ride-sharing companies must provide drivers with two QR code stickers that are placed on the back windows of the vehicles for riders to scan. I mean, I just think this is, you know, great smart policy. Sammy's parents have also worked with Congress on a federal law, also titled Sammy's Law, that requires all rideshare employees to have illuminated signs, QR code stickers, and front-facing license plates. The federal bill would create a 15-member advisory council that would report to the Secretary of Transportation, as well as regulate the sales of official rideshare signage and oversee the background checks of potential drivers. I think I've had this conversation with you before, Megan, but it's so strange how we're brought up our whole life, like don't get in cars with strangers, right? Because we're from, you know, we're children of the 80s, right? That's stranger danger. And then when, I mean, you and I talked about how we feel apprehensive getting into these cars. I mean, younger people don't because this is what they know. But as someone who was brought up being told you don't get in a car with a stranger, it still feels strange to me to do So I appreciate all of these protections, but it still makes me nervous. Uh, I'm not comfortable, Mm -hmm. that comfortable in Uber rides. I usually will only take one if I absolutely need to, and I'm with another person. Mm -hmm. Um, Even before this case, I felt uncomfortable with it, but especially after this case. Well, there's cases like this, right? Like there's been not many, but there's a handful of cases that are similar. There are a handful of these cases, and I think Sammy's case and others illustrate why this legislation is so important. And so in July of 2020, Sammy's law was unanimously passed by the House of Representatives. And then on January 5th, 2023, President Biden signed Sammy's law into effect, making it an official federal law. And the Josephsons were guests at the 2023 State of the Union address to hear the proclamation. It sounds like the Josephsons were really involved. I would imagine there was even more done to honor her memory. That's absolutely right. The Josephsons also created the What's My Name Foundation in Sammy's memory. Their mission is to educate the world on rideshare safety, as well as providing college scholarships to high school seniors. Um, They run alliances with high schools, colleges, and corporate companies, as well as providing resources and safety tips. Their motto is, ask what's my name before you enter a rideshare to make sure the driver picking you up is the driver on the app. Mm -hmm. I don't know about you, but I that campaign was very successful to me because that is the absolute thing I do immediately you if do. I have to take an Uber. Really? Yes, I do. Huh. See, because at first I'm thinking, you know, the signs in the window. That's great. But that then I think, well, anyone can order one of those probably online somewhere or make one. Um, the only thing that makes me feel secure is when I look in the app And I see the picture, the picture matches, and I see the reviews, and then it says that, like, you're being tracked. Yes. 
that makes me feel confident as well. But I always ask, what's my name? And I didn't realize that's probably why I did it. Mm. Successful legislation. Yeah. At the end of the day, Amy, Sammy's murder was a tragedy. But out of the ashes of her family's grief, so many protective laws have been put into place to ensure that her fateful mistake will not happen to anyone else. If our listeners are interested in learning more about rideshare safety, you can visit the What's My Name Foundation at whatsmyname.org. And if our listeners would like to know more about the emotional impact of Sammy's murder, Death in the Dorms on Hulu, Episode 5, does a fantastic interview with Sammy's family. Before we go today, if you'd like to support Campus Killings, consider subscribing to the show with an Abjack Insider subscription through Apple Podcasts. Your subscription will get you VIP access to all the shows on the network that not only includes hundreds of episodes of ad-free listening, but also bonus content and early access to episodes. And speaking of early access, with your Abjack Insider subscription, you don't have to wait to the next couple episodes of Campus Killings because they're available right now with your subscription. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting this show in the process. Head over to Apple Podcasts and search for either Campus Killings or Abjack and you can start your subscription with a free trial. Your support is greatly appreciated. Thank you, everyone, for listening today, and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of Campus Killings. Campus Killings is hosted by Dr. Megan Sachs and Dr. Amy Schlossberg, with research and writing by Abigail Belcastro. It's produced by Mike Morford of Abjack Entertainment. Be sure to follow Campus Killings on social media. You can find Campus Killings on Twitter with the handle at Campus Killings or on Facebook at facebook.com slash campus killings. You can also visit the show's homepage at campuskillings.com. Be sure to tune in every other Saturday for new episodes of Campus Killings.